1: This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.19, Duel in the Desert. And we're your hosts.
0: I'm Tom, longtime Gundam fan. And for my New Year's resolution, I'm going to watch more Gundam.
1: And I'm Nina, anime fan, and looking forward to starting my first Gunpla. Those of you who don't follow our social media won't have heard this story yet. We set out to buy my first Gunpla the morning of New Year's Eve. And I had three criteria. I wanted a mobile suit from the series we're currently watching. I wanted a real grade, and I wanted one that Tom doesn't have yet, which basically left me with a real grade Zaku, (laughs) if I could (laughs) find one. Uh, We visited three stores and then went back to the first store again. And then I saw it, shining red, accented in black and gold, and I was hooked.
0: Love at first sight.
1: And that's how I wound up with a real grade Sinanju, <laughs> breaking just one of my rules in the process. <laughs> Once I start, my progress photos will be on the Mobile Suit Breakdown Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. So be sure to check those out if you're interested in seeing how I do.
0: <laughs> and thank you to everyone who gave suggestions. I know we didn't end up going with any of your suggestions, but I have never actually built a real grade myself before, so I don't know how complex they are. And if not for some of you emailing and messaging us to let us know that, in fact, real grades are actually pretty beginner friendly, I probably would have tried to talk Nina out of getting this one, and I would have broken her heart in the process. So thank you again for all of your suggestions and your comments. And because I am objectively bad at Gunpla, we will definitely be reaching out to all of you for suggestions and help as we work on building our kits.
1: No worries. I'm the crafty one.
0: We have quite a few special thank yous going out this week. First of all, I want to thank James W. and Marcus for emailing us. And I want to thank Nice Ceramics, Dammit Tucker, Russ Burns Red, Johnny, and Dylan, who all wrote reviews about the podcast. Thank you all very much for that. I also want to extend our thanks to Sean, Flying Grizzly, Matthew, Goof Troop, And Heather, who became our very first patrons before we had actually officially launched the Patreon. They just found it and started supporting us, which is wonderful. Thank you.
1: Thank you, everyone.
0: And that brings us to the next thing, which is that our Patreon is now live. We have officially launched it. So, if you have never heard of Patreon before, it is a crowdfunding service that allows fans who want to help fund a project like ours by contributing a small amount on a monthly basis. We have tons of cool perks planned for the Patreon, and you can learn more about them on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Gundam Podcast. As a reminder, we are currently running a contest to promote the podcast. If you do any of the following before February 1st, you will be entered to win one of our fabulous prizes. Like our page on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram, become our patron on Patreon, or write us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Facebook, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and then send us a copy of the review so that we know that you wrote it. If you do more than one of those, you will be entered to win more than once. Do you want to tell them about our fabulous prizes?
1: Yeah. In addition to the Mobile Suit Gundam 0079 DVDs that we mentioned previously, some of the prizes will also include Gumpla from our Gumpla Shopping Expedition. More prizes will be announced soon. We are constantly looking for and putting together really cool Gundam merch. So keep your ears peeled and your eyes on our social media for more info.
0: Last week, after stealing the Gundam and running away from the white base, Amuro refused Fra's plea to return to his duty, instead launching a solo attack on a secret Zeon mine. Although he single-handedly, but also narrowly, defeated a new Zeon mobile weapon called the Adzam, Amuro was disappointed to learn that the base he destroyed was only one small part of Macve's Odessa mining operation. And now, episode 19, Rambararu toko, or episode 18, Rambaral's attack. The translations are close, but not quite identical because toko is actually a very particular kind of attack. Specifically, toko is an abbreviated form of tokubetsu kōgeki. It literally means special attack, but it would be more accurate to say that it means suicide attack or kamikaze attack.
1: This week, we're talking about the city of Sodom, Japanese sword fighting, and how the Gundam is like a mythical weapon. But first, the recap.
0: Amuro wanders the desert, searching for some place to replenish his supplies. He has left the Gundam hidden in a sand dune. As he stumbles upon an oasis town, called Sodden, we learn he is at least experiencing a feeling similar to regret for abandoning the White Base. He finds a bar where he can get a glass of water, but his drink is interrupted by the arrival of Rambaral, Hamon, and a squad of Zeon soldiers, along with two flatbed trucks carrying mobile suits. Hamon orders food for her troops and an extra meal for Amuro, but he refuses her hospitality. Rambo wonders aloud whether this teenaged boy is the kind of person that interests Hamon, and then he too invites Amuro to join them. But a moment later a soldier bursts in, holding Frauba at gunpoint. Catching the look of recognition that passes between Fra and Amuro, Rambo pulls open the boy's cloak and reveals the hidden pistol he's been clutching this whole time. Now even more impressed than before, Ramba merely laughs and orders the two of them released. On the way back, Frau and Amro very nearly talk about their feelings, but somehow they always seem to say the wrong things in the wrong way to each other. Amuro runs away again, and Frau laments that they are growing further and further apart. He returns to the Gundam, she to the White Base. But Ramba Rahl is no fool. One of his men has been trailing Fraubo since she left the town, now he knows the location of the White Base, and launches an all-out attack with his limited forces. Without Amuro and the Gundam, the White Base's defenders are outmatched, Ryu and Hayato sortie in the gun tank, but a missile strikes the treads and renders it immobile. The Zaku leaves them, essentially useless, and moves to attack the White Base itself, as Rambaral's goof overwhelms Kai in the gun cannon. Desperate now, Hayato ejects the top half of the gun tank, making himself a sitting duck, but allowing Ryu to take the core fighter and search for Amuro. The Zeon mobile suits attack the white base itself, and they are now too short-handed even to man all their guns. So instead, it is Mirai who makes the ship itself into a weapon, incinerating the attacking Zaku and its pilot, Stetch, with the white base's thrusters, before performing a barrel roll with the massive ship in order to shake off the goof. And now Amuro is here, Ryu found him nearby, already engaged with Haman and the gallop. He empties his rifle, firing at the Goof, but Ramba dodges every shot with ease. Now they draw their blades and clash. Amuro charges, and Ramba cuts clean through the Gundam's shield, but Amuro uses the opportunity to cut open the Goof's chest, revealing Ramba ral inside. A heartbeat later, Ramba returns the favor, and now the two pilots are face-to-face, close enough to shout invective at each other. Another clash, and this time each is fully committed. Amuro dodges Ramba's strike, disarms the goof by cutting off its hands, and then punctures its reactor. Ramba escapes, grappling onto the Gundam and swinging to safety, with one parting taunt. Remember that it was only the strength of your mobile suit, not your own ability, that won that duel. We close on Amuro in the brig on the white base. He has returned, but nothing has been forgiven. He screams at them to let him explain, but no one is listening. He screams that he is the best at piloting the Gundam, that they will need him. He calls for Bright, for Mirai, for Sela, for anyone to listen to his explanations. And down the hall, Frau listens to him calling every name except hers. This is an episode where I think there are really only three, three and a half scenes in the whole episode. We have Amaro meeting with a sexually liberated older couple in a club in the desert. (laughs) We have the battle. And we can maybe split the battle into two halves because there's the battle and then there's the duel once Amaro returns. And then part three is brief scene Amaro alone in his cell screaming at the walls about how great he is. And so each of these scenes is quite complex. There's a lot of things going on in it, a lot of different people. And we're going to address each of them in turn. The simplest place to start is at the beginning with <laughs> Amaro wandering through the desert, eventually finding a town called Soden or Sodin. Amuro
1: goes in for a snack and some water.
0: I bet you miss the White Base now, Amaro, that you're feeling thirsty and feeling something like regret. Yeah,
1: that opening narration is the only indication we have that Amro regrets his decision at all. (laughs) He never gives any other indication throughout the episode.
0: Disagree. Because when Frabo and Amro have a fight and separate in the desert and Amro is yelling, I'm not going to regret this. (laughs) I think that's a pretty clear indication that he already regrets it. Amuro suddenly finds himself in the company of these Zeon soldiers and the very glamorous, strikingly beautiful Hamon.
1: Who he notices immediately. And, and he has he,
0: the same reaction that he had when he saw Matilda. It's just like starstruck.
1: He doesn't blush, which I think he did with Matilda. He seems to not be able to stop himself from staring. Mm-hmm. And she notices him too. And... Hammond goes to order food for everyone and orders an extra. Remember oh, that's that's too many. And she's like, oh, no, get one for the boy over there. And then this next bit, <laughs> I, would need, I would need to listen to it again. And I would need to do some digging around. But if I heard the Japanese correctly, he said something like, ano ko ga which is literally like, oh, do you want that kid? <laughs>
0: and the English, the English translation is not that much less... Charged mm-hmm. because in the English, what he says is, Oh, are you interested in a boy like that? <laughs> and she says, Well, maybe I am, which you know, you can be interested or you can be interested.
1: Amuro seems to, obviously he's frightened (laughs) because a whole bunch of Zeon soldiers just came in and sat down behind him, but he's not in uniform and they have no reason to know who he is. He also seems to be wanting to eavesdrop on them. I got the vibe that he, for all that he's, I'm not part of the White Base crew anymore. Like he's still doing the soldier thing. (laughs) Like
0: we talked about last episode, he still sees himself as fighting against Zeon. It's just that he sees himself as fighting alone and going to win it all by himself.
1: But something pushes him to reject Hammond's offer. As the scene progresses, I think it becomes clear it's his pride. Because first he says, oh, I'm very grateful, but I can't accept. You don't have any reason to give me anything. She says, isn't it enough that I took a liking to you?
0: and this is all of the zeon soldiers at this point start ribbing amuro about this cuz it's really something to be liked by hamon
1: right like you should be grateful that you are a man and hamon likes you
0: <laughs> and one of the one of the guys is like i wish he liked me
1: and Amaro says something along the lines of like, well, maybe so, but I'm not a beggar. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want her charity. Mm-hmm. At which point, Ramboral laughs uproariously. He finds this all very funny.
0: He's clearly taken a liking to Amaro, too.
1: Uh, and I was like, you know what? I like you, kid. Like, what if it's from both of us? <laughs> if if your pride won't let you take a gift from a woman, maybe it will let you take a gift from me. Uh, <laughs> hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <clears throat> And then Frabo's arrival changes the whole scene because Frabo gets caught and she's wearing her Federation uniform, Mm -hmm. sort of. There is a little bit of like, that doesn't look like a proper uniform because Frabo has made it her own. She's taken the ranking pips off. She's got her neckerchief. And because of Amro not being able to control his tongue, it becomes immediately apparent to everyone that Amro and Frao know each other. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but it really seemed like Hammond's expression changes.
1: There's this little smirk of acknowledgement from Haman when she sees their reaction to each other. And she's like, oh, she's this boy's girlfriend. (laughs) Because the mere fact that they know each other's names and that they're surprised to see each other in this situation does not necessarily mean that they're boyfriend and girlfriend. No. But she reads something either into their body language or makes an assumption
0: Yeah, she can tell whatever this weird thing is between the two of them, which in a minute they're going to come as close to talking about as they have (laughs) throughout this whole series. She can tell.
1: And then when Ramba approaches Amuro very closely, they're very close together. The cutting back and forth between them, you can basically just see their faces and some of their shoulder movement. Mm -hmm. And we see him move. And then Amuro's face goes like shocked. Which I didn't know if Rambaral had grabbed Amaro. I don't know if he'd pulled a weapon on Amaro.
0: My initial read was that Ramba had pulled his sidearm and had like stuck the barrel of the gun into Amaro's stomach just based on the staging of the scene. But then the camera cuts and we see that, in fact, what Rambaral has done is pulled open the desert cloak that Amuro has been wearing and revealed that Amuro was holding his own gun.
1: Yeah, Amaro has started to pull his own gun.
0: This makes Ramba like grin and laugh.
1: It's like, I, I admire your Moxie, kid.
0: <laughs> you got guts. But, like, if you're already reading this as a weird, sexually charged scene, the fact that Amro is holding his gun the whole time, just gonna leave that there.
1: The minute they're outside, Amaro drops Fra's hand. He had taken Fra's hand and was holding it as they left the cantina. But then once they're outside, he lets go of her hand and starts walking briskly away. And I believe first he says, I told you not to follow me. And Fra says something along the lines of, they're not going to keep worrying about you, meaning the white base crew. Yeah. After a certain point, they will just leave you in the desert. (laughs) And then he hops in the dune buggy. And for a moment, I thought he was going to drive away without Fra. I thought he was going to take her dune buggy and go.
0: but <laughs> Which would have been just classic Amuro.
1: Sasuka Amuro. <laughs> but no, he tells her to get in and they start driving away. And then we get them almost kind of talking about their relationship. So close. And it's really all Fra, right? Fra says, you stopped holding my hand because that woman was watching.
0: And I was like, no, no, I didn't. <laughs> I'm not in love with every woman.
1: And she says, you just keep getting further and further away from me.
0: Which really gets you. You know, that's young love, right? That's the romances of 15-year-olds the world over since the beginning of time. You just keep getting further and further away from each other.
1: It makes me think a lot about what their relationship may have been like before the attack on Side 7. Mm-hmm. And that I'm very unclear on how Amro feels about Fra. <laughs> We've seen him act jealous once. <laughs> And we've seen him be sort of like physically close with her once or twice, but he doesn't give much away there. No,
0: but it's easy to imagine how their lives might have gone differently if not for the attack.
1: And we know from her behavior, from her actions, that she is basically constantly thinking about (laughs) him and concerned for his well-being. She has seen him change a lot since this all began.
0: And then they separate. He gets out of the dune buggy and she drives off to the white base. But before they go, they have one final confrontation where she tells him he's going to regret it. He screams, I won't regret this.
1: Well, she asks him first, aren't you coming back to the white base? Like... She clearly thinks that it's just a matter of time and she'll be able to talk him around soon and he's trying to prove a point or blow off steam or whatever it is, but that ultimately he will come back. But apparently he's not there yet because (laughs) he refuses and heads off to where he has hidden the Gundam in a dune.
0: A much better hiding place than under a bunch of tarps. Except that, as Nina pointed out during the episode, sand gets everywhere. It's coarse and irritating and I hate it.
1: But really, though, (laughs) uh, sand is notoriously bad for any sort of mechanisms. Sand is responsible for a lot of guns not working, yeah. among other things. So I wouldn't think you would want to get sand all up in the crevices of the Gundam, <laughs> but maybe they have fancy anti-sand technology. <laughs>
0: well, in later Gundam series are going to take problems like that much more seriously than this one does. Okay. You know, in the original design for first Gundam, the intention was that they would never actually go to Earth. They would just be in space the whole time, which would make the sand problem much less of an issue.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, well, to the battle. Indeed. So this is a, I thought, very interesting and exciting battle, though for some people more so than others. When Frabo gets back to the white base, we find out that she managed to do some snooping before she got caught. And she knows that there's a goof and a zaku in the town. Mm -hmm. So the white base starts preparing immediately. However, they are just a little bit too slow. When Kai heads out in the gun cannon, all of a sudden the goof is like on him. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) he's like, oh my gosh, they're here already.
0: (laughs) It's a great shot. He like jumps out ready for battle. And there's a great heroic shot of the gun cannon. One of the best drawings of the gun cannon so far. And he's like ready for battle. It's like, all right, where are they? And the goof is literally right in front of him. Like (laughs) five meters away. Yeah, whoops. (laughs) Ah! And then he gets hit by the heat rod. He gets tentacled.
1: The Zaku has special ammo this time, which it uses to great effect against the gun tank, taking out some of the treads. Mm -hmm. For a long time, taking out the treads was your best bet in anti-tank warfare. You weren't likely to be able to pierce tank armor, but if you could take out the treads, you could disable the tank. Hayato makes a very brave, but very dangerous decision. (laughs) I guess they can decouple the gun tank, leaving the top portion, the turret portion behind, but immobile uh while the bottom portion which is the portion that can change into the core fighter uh takes off to either provide air support or look for amuro in the gundam and both both ryu and kai are like hayato are you are you sure (laughs) kai even more explicitly hayato get out of there before you get killed
0: (laughs) and then when hayato is like no i've still got ammo i'll stay here and fight kai's like oh how noble of you
1: well, but he's, he tones down the sarcasm a lot. There's still a little bit of it there. I think he does think it's noble. I think he also thinks it's a bit foolish, but...
0: <laughs> now that the gun tank has been immobilized, it's essentially out of the fight. Hayato is still there in turret mode, but we don't actually see him do anything for the rest of the fight.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and Bright is like, Kai, you need to fend off the Zeon forces from Hayato and the remnants of the gun tank and from the white base. And Kai's like, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> I'll manage that somehow. <laughs> Are you kidding me? (laughs) But Ryu, flying over in the core fighter, sees the Gundam. Uh, Amuro saw the two mobile suits jumping over the dunes and realized they must have found the white base. To his credit, he sees that his friends are under attack and he goes back to help them. And then in the first, oh my God, Mirai is such a boss moment... (laughs) The Zaku goes to the rear of the white base to attack it. They have so few people that they haven't been able to man the rear turrets. They have no way to fire on that Zaku. But Mirai is like, everybody hang on. <laughs> and she Full guns speed it. speed ahead.
0: And this gets Mirai her first kill in the show because the engines disintegrate this Zaku.
1: I actually wondered, is this one of the first times we've seen a white base person who is isn't Amuro take out an enemy mobile suit? Has anybody else taken out an enemy mobile suit did kai in his first gun cannon outing just... i'm
0: not sure that anyone has because pushes... i think this is the first mobile suit kill because other people have killed tanks and planes yeah that happens i think yeah i think this is the first time somebody other than amuro has killed a mobile suit yeah go mirai
1: yeah well and ramaral <laughs> somewhat less emotional than we've seen him at previous lackey deaths
0: Still emotional, though. Still
1: emotional. You know, gruffly mutters to himself, careless fool. Because obviously you shouldn't be in the <laughs> in the engine backblast area. Right. Much clever, Rambaral in the goof sort of rockets up on top of the white base and begins attacking it with the heat rod. And now... Mirai is a total boss. Part two, she says, "I'm gonna shake him off."
0: Everybody, put on your seatbelts.
1: Brad's like, "Wait, can you do that? What about What about you?" And she's like, "Don't worry about me."
0: It never shows us how she handles this situation. She's she's just like
1: like, clinging upside
0: down from the wheel.
1: (laughs) Point is, she turns over the white base, and we see everyone else go flying. We see the orphans like crunched up against one of the bulkheads Uh because the ship has turned over. But she shakes off the goof.
0: <laughs> and Kai gives us the line of this episode when he sees her do this. and he see- we, we see the white base flying upside down across <laughs> the screen. And Kai is like, wow, Mirai is amazing. I
1: thought that was Hayato.
0: I could have been okay. Hayato. I, either we, clearly one of them. Don't, we clearly don't remember this very well.
1: There was a lot happening. There was.
0: Um, one of them says like, Mirai-san, sugoi.
1: I thought he said erai. Is it recording? It is. Having rewatched the scene, we were both half right. It is Hayato who notices how amazing Mirai is, but he says, Sugoi.
0: Sugoi, Mirai-san.
1: Kai is in some hand-to-hand with the goof momentarily.
0: I would say it's generous to call it hand-to-hand on Kai's part.
1: (laughs) He, he falls he, over. He and pulls the just most to trip Kai thing.
0: He's they get into close combat. The goof is charging at him and Kai just like ducks. Kai goes down on all fours. The goof sort of stumbles over him and like falls onto the other side. And they both get up and kind of embarrassedly brush themselves off and then go back to fighting.
1: And there's a slow motion shot of the goof shooting off one of the cannons, one of the two shoulder cannons, and then uh wrapping the heat rod around part of the gun cannon and electrifying it. I'm gonna say electrifying. That feels <laughs> like the
0: That's right. That that feels right.
1: Yeah, that feels like what the, <laughs> the heat rod does. Electrify. <laughs> and then Amaro to the rescue. He has saved Kai several times now.
0: In fact, he's saved Kai from exactly this situation before. In Amaro Dasol, Amaro Desserts. He also came in when Kai was getting electrified and he blasted off the gun cannon's arm. This time he's a little more precise and he shoots the tentacle itself and saves the gun cannon.
1: One of the things I thought was most interesting about this combat is it's the first indication we've had that the goof has a computer like the Gundam's. Yeah. He mentions because the Gundam's Firing is partially computer-assisted. It's precise, but it's precise in a way that his computer can anticipate, which is why he's able to dodge all of the ranged attacks from the Gundam. We even see his screen augmented with all the equations and numbers and information in the same way that we've seen Amuro's screen and uh, the screen when Amuro is doing all the simulations. And so this is our first indication. We know the goof is like the cutting edge experimental Xeon mobile suit, but that they are working on similar basis, <laughs> have similar ideas in this mm-hmm. development as the Federation did for the Gundam. Uh, and also means that very quickly this becomes a sword fight.
0: It turns into a real old-fashioned samurai movie as we move into the dual phase of the combat.
1: Once the shield is gone.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I guess the shield is not properly samurai, but...
1: That poor shield. Destroy (laughs) it again.
0: But in such a beautiful shot where they're charging at each other, right? Mm-hmm. And Amuro has the shield up and he's got his sword sort of hidden behind his body. And Rambaral draws his heat sword and he you know, slices as Amuro charges and he cuts cleanly through the shield. Mm-hmm. But Amuro has jumped. Right. Because all Rambaral saw was the shield. And Amuro comes down and he slashes. I think this is the scene where he slashes open the Goof's chest.
1: Yeah, they both manage to slash open the cockpits of each other's mobile suits. Those are the kind of hits that in in other fights we've seen, if they had gone just a touch deeper, the whole mobile suit would have exploded. What it does is it allows us to have this face to face that you do not normally get during a mobile suit fight. It's really they quite brilliant. They can see each other. And suddenly this is much more personal. Mm-hmm. And then we have them standing across the field posed. And then we know it's a samurai fight. The shapes of the beam sabers, the positioning and stance of the mobile suits.
0: Amuro is holding his in two hands and he's got it. Basically coming out of his groin, which is one of the standard positions.
1: Right. Between his own legs and up. And in classic samurai movie fashion, one of the two charges, in this case, it's Ron and the Goof charges and Amuro waits and waits and waits for just the right moment and slashes both of the goofs hands off.
0: Which is actually one of the standard attacks in Kendo to attack the wrists. Kote is to slice off the hands of your opponent so that they can't wield their sword.
1: And this this brings the bodies of the mobile suits right together. And so the two of them are face to face and talking
0: yeah they recognize each other from that bar
1: and Rambaral is even more impressed now and Amaro aims a final blow at the generator on the back of the goof mm-hmm. uh which he knows will destroy it but ramboral is too tricksy to be killed Caught in
0: such a fashion
1: <laughs> and attaches like a grappling line <laughs>
0: to... there's a little tarzan swing off of the gundam
1: yep And as a parting shot to Amuro tells him to remember that his own skill is not what won him the battle, that it was the mobile suit and its (laughs) superior technology that really won.
0: And I wonder how much of that is true and how much of that is Ramaral just trying to save his own pride.
1: I think it's psychological warfare. I think it's Rummel knowing that young people are highly susceptible to attacks on their pride. Well,
0: and he knows how proud Amaro is from mm-hmm. their interaction earlier. It's a very targeted blow.
1: Oh yeah. I think I think it was a deliberate I'm going to get in this kid's head before I leave. <laughs> yeah. And then we're left to wonder, all right, Amuro's back. What's going to happen now?
0: We don't have to wonder very long. No. Because what's going to happen now is he's going to be staring through a prison cell grate at Bright and
1: Kai Kai, and Ryu.
0: And Amuro is going to end the episode in his cell screaming at the walls that he's the best at piloting the Gundam. He's so great. And if they will just listen to him, he can explain everything and they'll understand why he left. And he's screaming for anybody, anybody who might listen to him.
1: Except for Frabo. (laughs) Yeah,
0: except the one person who might listen to him.
1: Well, he fundamentally misunderstands, even when Bright tells him, like, regardless of the fact that you came and helped us, you have, like, damaged our teamwork. You've damaged morale. And so here you are. Uh, And Amaro seems to think, oh, if they would just let me explain my feelings, then that would forgive my behavior. And like, no, it actually does not matter at all how you felt.
0: No one here cares about your feelings.
1: Like, what matters is what you did and what you did deserves punishment and both re- you and Kai are very quick to back up Ramboral's comment that they were looking for him because they needed the Gundam, not because they needed him. Yep. It has nothing to do with him being good at piloting the Gundam. And he, I started thinking a lot about conceptions of like what it means to be the best at something, uh, what it means to be, you know, best in the world. But no one is irreplaceable. Right. Mm -hmm. And there are very few endeavors where you can actually say I am the best in the world. I'm thinking of some Olympic sports where like I hold the world record time for X. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you are the, the best at that thing. But in most life endeavors, you can be one of the best, but there's no way to say that you are the best in the world. Yeah. And all it takes is one bad day. You know, and when we're talking about combat, that's especially true. All it takes is one mistake.
0: And what's so striking about this is that not that many episodes ago, Amuro was very quick to say, no, no, it's just the performance of the Gundam. I'm an amateur. I'm not that great. The Gundam is great. It's because of the Gundam. It's because of the learning computer. That's how I'm able to win these battles.
1: And now he's very quick to think that it's him when no one else has had a chance to even learn on it. Yeah. You know, Selah. <laughs> Has the most Gundam experience other than him. Yeah. And she has one one battle. He's
0: very jealously guarded it. And I think what made him leave was the fear that somebody else would be allowed to use the Gundam mm-hmm. and perhaps a fear that if other people start using the Gundam, somebody else is going to be as good or better at Gundam stuff than he is. And his ego is so tied up in being the best at Gundam stuff right now. I was
1: going to say his self-worth is Mm -hmm. entirely dependent on this idea of I am the Gundam ace.
0: Right. He has at this point suffered so many psychological blows. He's gone through so much so quickly that of course his sense of self has been degraded. Of course he needs something he can cling on to. Of course he's starting to become a little bit of a narcissist and he's becoming obsessed with the Gundam and his own incredible Gundam powers. I think it's driving all of his actions. He's not helping himself. No. But it's easy to understand why he's behaving the way he is.
1: The people he calls out to are all people in positions of nominal authority because that's who he wants acceptance and approval from is these authority figures. He takes Fra for granted.
0: Oh, absolutely. He
1: doesn't need Fra to hear him explain because he knows that she cares about him. And, you know, he he takes for granted that Fra forgives him, Mm -hmm. which I think is not necessarily true (laughs) right now. Yeah. but But he does take it for granted. And so he doesn't feel any need to explain to her. Things just are the way they are. And then at the very end of the episode, we get the moment that made Tom wonder if this whole thing is a little edible. Amuro caught up in this idea of, but I'm the best. I am the best pilot, is remembering Rambaral and Rambaral's parting shot at him and thinking, I really want to beat that guy. This dynamic of Amuro saw you know Rambaral and Hammond together. He knows they're together. He clearly admired Hamon. Admired? He now has had experience fighting Ramral and has been sort of knocked back down to size. Not really, but <laughs> has, has had his pride hurt by this older man who he now is obsessed with destroying.
0: He won the battle, but still this older man refuses to acknowledge that Amuro is better than him and refuses to get out of the way and let Amuro romance Hamon. <laughs> and so he has to destroy him. He has to prove his superiority. And one of the classic pieces of Freud's idea of what the Oedipus Complex is, is that you have this attraction to, in the Oedipus Complex classic, your mother, but because Amuro is weird with mothers and fathers, everyone's his mother, everyone's his (laughs) father. Amuro has this attraction to an older woman, Haman, and then this sense of incredible rivalry with the woman's romantic partner, Ramba.
1: Who also does represent a kind of father figure in the way he interacts with Amuro early on before he knows Amuro is a pilot. And even later, there's this sense of like, you're a good kid. (laughs) You know,
0: have we established that this is Zeon mom and Zeon dad?
1: Yeah, probably.
0: And when Amuro is in a tiff with ship mom and ship dad, he goes off to Zeon mom and Zeon dad. Amuro's like a cat. Amuro's like a family cat who gets fed at home and then runs away to another his family. other family to get <laughs> fed there too.
1: This actually segs really nicely into another thought I was having. Probably the weirdest animation moment in the episode is Amaro is thinking about Hammond and Rambaral, <laughs> and there's an outline I know of where them you're going with those. There's an outline of them on a bright yellow background and he's thinking to himself, "Are these who were fighting?" And the outline just like spins. <laughs> Which it just spins around.
0: <laughs> I feel like it's a classic 70s animation trope. But usually of like the spinning, like the spinning image and it but usually, starts to get very psychedelic.
1: It's and- usually combined with some kind of zoom in and zoom out. Yeah. Like this one is is not good. <laughs> no. Um, but it made me realize all of a sudden Amuro has had a lot of, frankly, positive interactions with Xeon's face to face. And a lot of really negative interactions with Fetty's face-to-face mm-hmm. Federation people.
0: She's adopting our lingo.
1: <laughs> Things start out rocky with Kukuru Zudon, but there ends up being a weird respect there. Mm-hmm. Uh, last episode, the wounded soldier he finds... Uh, his interaction with the Xeon soldiers in this episode is largely positive. And then on the Federation side, there were the Federation soldiers hassling his old neighbors who were squatting in his former home. Uh, he was
0: getting arrested back on Luna 2.
1: His most positive Federation interactions have been with Matilda.
0: Thump, thump, Matilda.
1: I think we're coming back to this idea that Amro is not really concerned with the wider implications of the war. He's driven very much by personal issues. And so... He kind of needs a rival mm-hmm. to stay at all motivated in what's happening.
0: Not for nothing. He's really started to disintegrate now that Char is out of the picture.
1: I was thinking of that. And that, you know, now that he desperately wants to take out Rombaral, I think he's going to really want to get back in everyone's good graces so that they will let him pilot the Gundam again. But again, this, is, this isn't really about being useful to everyone. It mm-hmm. isn't really about doing his bit. It's because he has this very personal vendetta now yeah. that he wants to deal with
0: yeah all right we have a couple of check-ins um things that came up in a minor way in this episode but that we've talked about before and i wanted to touch on really quick one is the orphans we get them for just a second at the beginning while the white base crew is doing maintenance the orphans are repainting a section of the hull and one of them says i hate this
1: (laughs) well they're in the middle of the desert i'm sure it's very hot
0: oh yeah and being forced to work at like age six i get it (laughs) But like we've talked about before, the orphans are doing their best to help. Everyone on the white base is doing their best to help, even though they hate it. Except Amuro.
1: Yep. Oh, I have a I have one also. Mm -hmm. The general trend of the show with Trying to capture the Gundam or destroy the Gundam with uh, people telling Amuro or Amuro telling himself that his skill is more to do with the Gundam's power than any ability of his own. Reminded me of a trope from some different stories of the sort of ultimate weapon, right? The, the weapon that's so great, it inspires this crazy competition to get it. The first thing that came to my mind was a Western Winchester 73, which is about like a lot of people have heard of Winchester, which is a which is a brand. And the 73 was purported to be their best gun ever, 73 being the year that they made.
0: That's 1873, right?
1: Yes, 1873. And in the movie Winchester 73, there's some kind of competition to win one. And then a bunch of people try to steal it. And so the whole movie is about people trying to get this famous gun. And I'm sure, though I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, that there must exist samurai movies where it's a sword, right? Like some incredible sword that everybody wants because it's the best sword there is. Um,
0: (laughs) Yeah, we'll have to research that.
1: Well, and you brought up, you you feel like that's... Oh, Crouching
0: Tiger, Hidden Dragon is all about the green destiny that's a relatively recent movie i'm sure it's trading on old tropes
1: all of these stories are predicated on an idea that regardless of how good you are as a marksman or as a sword fighter that there's something special about this weapon that would make you even better or that even if you're not the best at any of these things this weapon will make you the best
0: We've also talked about how the, the other members of the White Base crew give us a sense for how normal people think about Amuro outside of the show's intense focus on Amuro and his own
1: internal life,
0: his internal life, his own sense of his greatness <laughs> and his centrality to the universe. The comments that other people on the White Base make tell us how he's really being viewed. And so you get in this episode, after Frabo has reported back about her interaction with Amuro and seeing the goof and the zaku, Kai saying, oh, I bet Amuro told them about the white base. And in the same scene, Bright asks Ryu, oh, Ryu, do you agree with everybody else about Amuro? And it's not explicitly stated, but it, it seems to be the case in that scene that everybody on the white base thinks Amuro has sold them out, has abandoned them, needs to go straight into the brig. If they don't just execute him, like everybody has turned against Amuro and it's only a a handful of people like Ryu and Bright and Mirai who still are willing to give Amuro a chance.
1: At the time, Ryu says, eh, We need to wait and see how Amaro is feeling when he gets back. And based on Ryu's reaction <laughs> when they have Amaro in the brig, I think that Ryu fundamentally sees Amaro as a good kid, but was looking for some kind of apology or some kind of demonstration of remorse over his behavior and got none.
0: Almost the opposite. Like, it doesn't show us this, but one strongly gets the impression that Amuro got back and was like, hey, guys, I saved you. Are you ready to celebrate me? Right. Who wants to be first to, to tell me how great I am at piloting the Gundam? You know I'm the greatest, right?
1: I know there's some bad feeling over before, but I can explain all that away.
0: It was because of my feelings.
1: I have so many excuses.
0: And because my feelings are the most important in the world, I think we can all agree I should be forgiven.
1: Which is the point at which Ryu is like, do you know why we were looking for you? And Homer says, because I'm the best at the Gundam? He's like, no, because we needed the Gundam back. Yeah.
0: Which m- kind of rhymes with what Rambo was saying mm-hmm. as he was swinging away on his Tarzan vine of a grappling hook. It's just the Gundam, kid. It's not you. You're not that great.
1: I don't remember which of the three of them, whether it's Bright, Kai or Ryu, says to Amuro that he's being conceited.
0: Yeah, I don't remember that either.
1: But Kai is the, gets the last word in and says, think about that while you're in here. It's hard to imagine how Amro will ever earn the forgiveness of the crew.
0: Yeah. In a lot of shows, all Amro would have to do would be to save them when they're in their most dire peril. And I don't think that's how this is going to work because he did just save them from dire peril and it wasn't enough going to need to be something more than that and it, it might require some real growth on Amuro's part. I have one final check-in and that's the bit of animation that has now shown up at the beginning of the last four episodes which is Amuro and Ryu using the Gundam and the gun parry to practice mid-air docking between the core fighter and the Gundam which at this point... <laughs> You know, this was appearing in episodes where Amuro had run away from the White Base. It's appearing now.
1: Well, and they keep justifying using it as like Amuro may never do this again. <laughs> it was it was originally from Kikuruzu Don's island. Uh, I wondered if it was just since they didn't wind up using that episode and it was probably one of the most expensive parts of the animation for that episode. They want to get their money's worth and keep using it.
0: But remember that they did air Kukuru's Doan's Island in Japan. At this point, there's nothing unique about that episode. I think this is a sponsor thing. I think the Gundam core fighter combination ability is a key advertising point for the Gundam mm. combination set toy that they are trying Trying to sell. And that function almost never shows up in the actual episodes. Right. And so this is like a 45 second commercial for that cool combination function. And the sponsors want it in every episode. And so it's in every episode. It goes right at the beginning and the narration justifies it in some way. And I can even imagine the note that Sunrise got that was like the Gundam combination must appear in every episode. And that's exactly the sort of thing that sponsors insist on. You know, this gimmick, this thing must appear in every episode. And so this is the least obtrusive way (laughs) of doing that. To
1: just tack this beginning on over and Mm -hmm. over again. Yep. A quick heads up to our listeners. This next segment discusses the story of Sodom. So it does contain some rather graphic violence. If you would prefer not to hear about it, please skip ahead to the next segment. When Fra returns, she mentions that the town where she found Amuro is called Sodon, S-O-D-O-N in the subtitles. But those of you familiar with Japanese language may remember that there is only one phonetic character for both the N and M mm sounds. To my mind, this town is meant to be a reference to Sodom of Sodom and Gomorrah fame.
0: And I did some research in the real world geography in this area, and I couldn't find anything called Sodon. So I think that backs up Nina's theory.
1: The question, of course, being Why? <laughs> Most of us have at least a vague idea of the story. Two cities so sinful that God destroyed them. Only one family being allowed to escape. Lot's wife looking back on the city and being turned into a pillar of salt. Here are the bits I didn't know. Sodom is mentioned in the biblical book of Genesis, but it also gets mentioned in the Torah and in the Quran. It is described as one of five cities of the plain, located in Canaan on the Jordan River. However, while a number of archaeological sites have been proposed as possible locations, no one has been able to confirm definitively where Sodom was. Some archaeologists also argue that it never existed, (laughs) but it does show up in some Greek and Roman histories, as well as in various religious texts of the period.
0: Whether it existed or not, a lot of people believed that it did. And a lot of cultures are built with that understanding somewhere in the foundation.
1: Some of the texts that reference Sodom get very specific about the unrepentant sinfulness of the place and its people. One of the more familiar parts of the story for many of us involves the townspeople attempting to rape lots guests who are three angels disguised as men. An alternate reading of that particular piece of the story is that they only, pl- only <laughs> plan on questioning these strangers, which is to say torturing them. Some scholars see classical Jewish texts as stressing Sodom's cruelty and lack of hospitality to strangers. They punished crime victims. They punished those who helped travelers or the poor, and regularly tortured and tormented travelers. In one of the stories, one of Lot's daughters is burned on a pyre for giving bread to a beggar. A woman who gives water to a traveler is covered in honey and stung to death by bees. (laughs) And in one story, travelers are given a bed, but (laughs) if they are too short for the bed, they are stretched and if they are too long for the bed, their feet are lopped off.
0: There's a very similar story in Greek mythology. I'd love to know which came first and whether there's a direct influence or if this is just like ancient world shorthand for being bad.
1: <laughs> for being a horrible, horrible, scary person. <laughs> Finally, Operation Gomorrah was the code name given to the Allied firebombing of Hamburg in July of 1943, in which the city was almost completely destroyed. Hmm. And possibly more civilians were killed than in the bombing of Nagasaki.
0: How does that compare to the bombing of Dresden?
1: I'm not certain. Same kind of technology, but it was the first time that they used one of the earliest technologies to defeat enemy radar was to drop clouds of shredded tinfoil, essentially. Shredded aluminum. And this would show up on the radar and confuse the radar operators as to whether they were looking at planes or, or what exactly it, it was they were seeing. And because they were able to cloud the enemy radar in this way, many more of the planes hit their targets mm. and were able to complete their mission. It was a much higher success rate in terms of hitting their intended targets than was typical for bombings. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when the writer's name this city Sodom, what is that meant to conjure? An irredeemable society doomed to destruction? Are there specifically sexual connotations? Has the place already suffered the destruction that this hints at or is that destruction coming?
0: I think there's a couple of good reads in there. I think the last one you said that this is a place that has already been destroyed. After all, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by brimstone raining from the sky, Mm -hmm. and much of Earth has been destroyed by colony bits raining from the sky. It could have felt very much like divine punishment. The other piece, I think we did say when we were watching this that there was an interesting tense, seemingly sexual dynamic between Amaro, Rambaral, and Hamon when they met in Sodom. And then the third piece of it, which I just thought of while you were talking <laughs> about it, is that many of the people you described being punished in Sodom were people who had done something good for someone else, mm-hmm. who had offered a glass of water to a thirsty traveler and right. were executed for it. And in this episode, after Ramba and Hamon offer food and water to Amuro in the bar, later they fight and Amaro destroys Ramba's mobile suit, trying to kill him.
1: I'm thinking back to the bit about how the law in Sodom and Gomorrah tended to punish victims of crimes and possibly a sense that The people most suffering from the war were the people who were already (laughs) victims of the war. Mm -hmm. And when I say punishing the victims of crimes, some of the examples that came up in my research were things like someone gets beaten up and their attacker's knuckles break open and they bleed. And the person who got beaten up has to compensate their attacker (laughs) because their attacker got injured. Mm Mm-hmm. And a thing that feels a little too real. A woman who has a miscarriage because a man attacks her has to marry him so that he can give her a new child. But well, and, yeah. in, and in the Bible, these are horrible things. We're meant to see this as completely cruel mm-hmm. and nonsensical. Mm-hmm. A lot of the communities that we've seen suffering in the war, it just feels like cruelty upon cruelty.
0: Mm-hmm. That's interesting.
1: Uh, however, I don't know that that aspect of the story would have been familiar to a bunch of Japanese writers.
0: Yeah, though we see Christian crosses on graves in this show, which is a little unusual for a Japanese program. So there's something there, and it's something that we're going to need to keep an eye on.
1: The final bit that strikes me about the possible Sodom parallel is that Sodom deserved to be destroyed. <laughs> and so if we're drawing a parallel between sort of human society on Earth and the destruction it has suffered during the war, is the story saying, this society had become sick or evil or sinful in a way that brought destruction on itself. Mm. And that feels like a message that could be there. Mm -hmm. We've talked before about some of the environmental commentary on the edges of the show. We've talked about some of the obvious sociopolitical and economic stuff going on. And so possibly there's a comment there that Through greed and vengeance and violence and abuse of the environment, Earth has brought this destruction on itself. Mm -hmm. Or I should say Earth's humans have brought this destruction on themselves. We may not feel like we have a definitive answer to this question until we've seen more (laughs) of the series. (laughs) But the name choice is significant. It's clearly meant to be on our minds. So definitely worth keeping in mind as we continue to watch.
0: And I do want to add about the name choice and the unexpected... Christian and Jewish elements that have been introduced in this episode, those flatbed trucks that Rambaral is using to transport his mobile suits are called Samson's. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm.
1: If you've watched a lot of anime, you've probably seen various Judeo-Christian religious elements crop up in a whole variety of stories in In ways, I think, that reflect that the writers are coming from a culture that is not primarily Judeo-Christian. <laughs> In Evangelion, the angels are these beings of horrible destruction that try to kill everyone.
0: Mm-hmm. In Trigun, uh, Nicholas Wolfwood carries around a giant crucifix of a size to be the cross that Christ was crucified on, but it's actually a gun full of more guns.
1: Right. It crops up a lot. There's clearly a certain element of fascination with the imagery, not unlike a lot of Orientalism <laughs> in Western art and culture, which is to say, the co opting of certain imagery or ideas from Eastern art, but taken out of context and used to make something seem exotic and
0: mystical and foreign and yeah (laughs) (laughs) we'll talk
1: more about orientalism later (laughs) forever
0: (laughs) but i would say that sodom and samson are pretty deep cuts they suggest a level of familiarity with the source material that is greater than what you usually find in anime something to keep an eye on as we go forward Ever since we watched this episode, I have been fascinated by that final duel between Amuro and Rambaral. It's the finest sword duel that we've seen in Gundam so far, and perhaps the best single fight of the show to this point. And it's really the first time we've seen two nearly matched opponents. Amuro's raw talent and his nascent skills against Rambaral's cunning, his experience, and the goof being very close to negating the advantage that the Gundam has enjoyed since the beginning of the show. Not quite there yet, but it's really close. And what was also striking to me was how closely this fight aligns with the techniques and the psychology of traditional Japanese sword fighting. First, a disclaimer. I have practiced some kendo, but I did not train very long or very well. (laughs) Of the martial arts I've done, it is absolutely the one that I understand the least well. So I had to hit the books for this section, and that came with its own difficulties. Kendo, as well as other Japanese sword traditions like Kenjutsu, Tameshigiri, and Iaido, as well as empty-handed martial arts like Judo and Karate and Sumo, all use some of the same terminology, but they don't always use the same words to mean the same things. For example, in Kendo, Kirigaishi is a partnered practice involving repeated overhead strikes. In Iaido, Kirigaishi is a large diagonal cut, and in Sumo, it is a twisting backward knee trip. I've also consulted with a fight choreographer, Sean Michael Chin, who knows more about swords and sword fighting than anyone else I know, and I've watched countless videos, from the duels of Kurosawa's samurai movies to modern kendo tournaments, trying to nail down exactly what's going on here. This is not the right time for an in-depth or comprehensive review of Japanese sword traditions, their origins, historical evolution, role in Japanese imperialism, and modern status. Although, one of those is coming up soon, so I hope you're as excited for it as I am.
1: I hope you saved all your research (laughs) for later.
0: (laughs) Oh, I did. But a brief overview and some definitions of the terms that I just threw at you are going to be helpful before we go any further. First, kendo and kenjutsu. The ken in both of these related martial arts means sword. And as we covered back in episode 1.13, when I talked about judo and jujitsu, the do ending suggests that we are talking about a practice which leads to personal growth and spiritual fulfillment, whereas the jutsu or jitsu ending suggests a method for accomplishing a task. In this case, the task of using a sword to make someone else very dead. So kendo is the sport of Japanese fencing, and it has about the same relationship to sword fighting that western fencing does. Two competitors duel with flexible bamboo sword proxies called shinai and wear protective gear called bogu that more or less resembles the ancient battlefield armor of centuries past. They compete to score a point by striking one of a handful of approved targets using one of a handful of proper strikes. Very organized, with tournaments and school clubs and all that sort of thing. Kenjutsu is related to Kendo, but they're like two siblings who started out so, so similar until they got to high school, where Kendo became popular and started hanging out with all the jocks, and Kenjutsu got really interested in historical reenactment. Kenjutsu is more about trying to preserve the ancient schools of sword fighting that developed in Japan back when sword fighting was practical, and then were preserved, more or less, and probably less in most cases, during the Tokugawa and Imperial periods when sword fighting was fashionable. Iaido and Tameshigiri are very specific forms of sword practice that complement both Kendo and Kenjutsu. Iaido is the art of drawing the sword, performing one lethal cut and sheathing the sword again, all in a single smooth motion. Tameshigiri means test cutting, and it's the practice of using a real, live steel sword to cut through some object. It was originally done to test the quality of a new blade, and I'm going to spare you the gruesome details of exactly what that meant during the medieval period. I
1: remember what that meant. Hmm.
0: But now it is done in order to test the cutting skill of the practitioner. Cheap, mass-produced swords are used, and these days you mostly see people cutting a bundle made from rolling a waterlogged tatami mat around a stalk of green bamboo, a combination that is supposed to have the same density as human flesh.
1: Ugh. Yeah. That feels like an unnecessary clarification. (laughs) It feels like-
0: Should I not have said that?
1: No, I meant for them, for (laughs) them to be like, we're going to do this practice cutting thing. Clearly, all of our targets must feel like cutting through humans.
0: Otherwise, how do you know you're doing it right? hmm Now, that out of the way, the duel here occurs in three distinct stages the shooting, the belly cuts, and then the final clash. Or to put it another way, mind games, first blood, and full commitment. The duel opens with Amuro attacking from above, and with the range advantage. He nearly empties his rifle, firing on Ramboral to no effect, then discards it and draws his beam saber. And the most interesting thing about this is why Amuro misses. We learn for the first time that the Goof is also equipped with a computer that is capable of analyzing the computer-guided shots from the Gundam and predicting precisely where they will land, allowing Ramba to dodge each shot with a minimum of movement and no apparent effort. This is a battle between the two Mobile Suit's computers more than it is between the two mobile suits or their pilots. And so, in a sense, it is a mental battle preceding the physical one. After all, what is a computer except a machine's mind? This mental battle is also an essential part of kendo. Kendo matches are frequently described by kendo masters as being conflicts of spirit first, in which the actual clash of the shinai is merely a reflection of that invisible battle. As Honda Satoru, coach of the British National Kendo Squad, wrote, Even if there is little exterior movement, there are active interior movements in two competitors' minds. Kendo masters take it for granted that trying to overwhelm an opponent's key by one's own key and to strike is the real kendo. And discussions of kendo are full of this sort of idea, that the openings to attack are created by weaknesses in one fighter's spirit. And part of this lies in how kendoka, or kendo practitioners, are taught to focus. When the Gundam fires, Ramba is able to tell where it is shooting because Amuro and the Gundam's computer are focused on the target, and they hit precisely where they aim. But Ramba and the goof's computer can see where they are aiming, and so he can predict where they will hit. And in kendo, as in all martial arts, beginner's attacks are often very easy to predict because they tend to look where they mean to hit. As kendo students practice, they learn to develop enzan no metzke, or positioning the eyes as though looking at a faraway mountain. (laughs) By focusing on not focusing, the kendo expert becomes more difficult to predict. So now we move into phase two. Amuro drops the rifle and both draw their swords. They clash briefly, separate, clash again, and each cuts open the other's belly, exposing the cockpits within. And now it's time to talk about hara. Hara is a Japanese term for the abdomen, the stomach, or the womb. But it's not a mere anatomical term. Hara in Japanese is a bit like a combination of heart and gut in European English thought. It's your mind, your center, the physical location of your spirit and will. The word can also be used to mean your motivations, your true intentions, or your courage. Ritual suicide in medieval Japan required cutting through the hara. This is literally the meaning of harakiri, hara cutting. So it's probably no coincidence that the pilots in the mobile suits are located in the hara. And now that Amuro and Ramba have cut each other open, this becomes a battle between their real inner selves, in the most exposed, direct, and personal battle of the show so far. The armor that concealed their true feelings, and the cameras and monitors that mediated their experience of the world and gave them the illusion of sight, are all gone for the final clash of the duel. And what a final clash. Each one is blooded now, and they are fully committed to this next action. They pause, staring at each other. Their spirits, perhaps represented by their pilots, struggle, even as the mobile suits that are their bodies stand motionless. You can see very similar fights in the duels in Akira Kurosawa's films. And remember that Tomino himself considered Kurosawa to be one of his biggest influences. In Seven Samurai in particular, there's a shot during a duel where the camera sits behind one samurai who holds his katana low in both hands, facing an older, more experienced samurai wielding his sword only in his right hand.
1: So he just recreated a shot from Seven Samurai. Yeah, it's
0: remarkably similar. (laughs) But
1: with mobile suits.
0: I will be posting comparison pictures in the show notes, as well as on Twitter and Instagram, so you can all see for yourselves.
1: I love it. I love it so much.
0: (laughs) And finally, they each make their last fully committed attack. This time, for the first time, Amuro lets his opponent charge and strike first, holding his sword in a low, ready posture, recognizable as the Kendo and Kenjutsu sword posture, Hidari Waki Gamai. He dodges low and to his left as Ramba's heat sword passes harmlessly through the empty air where the Gundam's head would have been, and when Ramba's arms are fully extended, Amuro slices upward, cutting them off at the elbow. Even disarmed, Ramba tries to shoulder check the Gundam away, but Amuro brings his beam saber down into the goof's back, destroying it. This final exchange is my favorite part of the fight, and in a show that has regularly had very excellent battle choreography, it still managed to stand out and make me gasp a little bit in awe. So I wanna analyze it a little bit more closely and talk about the timing of what is happening and the cuts that are being made by each character. In Kendo here, the timing would be called Nuki. Nuki means allowing your opponent to attack, causing them to miss, and then striking the opening created by their attack before they're able to recover. For example, if your opponent attempts to strike a downward blow at your wrists, You raise your own sword overhead. The cut aimed at where your wrists were will miss, and you can strike the top of your opponent's head while their sword is occupied down where your wrists aren't. Here, Ramba aims his cut at the side of Amuro's head, but Amuro weaves low like a boxer and forces the attack to miss. But now we get into the cuts themselves. And this was a tricky bit to research because these are absolutely not approved kendo cuts. (laughs) Neither one of these guys would have scored any points for this but that is because kendo for sport reasons political reasons and a whole mess of other good and bad reasons that we will cover someday soon only allows the attacks that are hardest to execute and easiest to defend against the attacks in gundam however are absolutely valid in the other sword traditions that we mentioned earlier the ones that are more focused on the practical question of how to use this sharpened steel to make that person dead ramba's strike is meant to be a sweeping blow to the temple which would be called shaman uchi japanese martial art terms are often wonderfully literal so shaman uchi just means strike to the temple amuro's is a little more complicated because it is a one-handed diagonal upward strike something like this is actually a very common technique in iaido where the sword is drawn and the cut is made in one smooth action as it comes out of the scabbard It would be called katate gyaku kesagiri, or one-handed reverse diagonal cut. The left hand remains on the scabbard, while the right hand slashes upward. And if you watch closely here, the Gundam's left hand lingers where the scabbard would be, if the beam saber had a scabbard, and the beam saber even curves slightly like a katana while Amuro is holding it and waiting for Ramba's attack. To close on an interesting side note, the first time we saw someone pull off a move like this was in episode 3, when Amuro fought the veteran supply corps officer and majestic space walrus Gadem. In that fight, it was Amuro who struck too soon, overextending himself while Gadem dodged underneath the beam saber to deliver a smashing blow to the Gundam's stomach. At the time, Gadem mocked Amuro for his rookie mistake, and it was only the Gundam's powerful armor that saved him. Now, we see Amuro using that same tactic to beat one of Zeon's finest aces. He's come a long way in a very short time.
1: In the talkback, I brought up mythical weapons, and specifically the classic western Winchester 73. The Winchester Model 73 rifle, so-called because it was first produced and sold in 1873, was marketed as the gun that won the West. To celebrate and promote it, Winchester established a special one-of-1000 grade of rifle. These were rifles whose barrels produced unusually small groupings in test firing, which was an indication of superior accuracy. In the film, the main character, played by no less than Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> wins one of these prized guns in a shooting contest. It is promptly stolen by an outlaw, and the film follows the gun's journey as it is bought and sold, stolen and recovered, and used in gunfights and robberies, leaving only mishap and tragedy in its wake. The pursuit of the Gundam, first by Shar, then by Garma, and now by Rambaral, made me think of Winchester 73 and stories like it. Stories of mythic weapons of untold power, constantly pursued, but often leading to tragedy for both the pursuers and whoever wields the weapon.
0: It's worth noting in passing that the 78 in RX 78-2 refers to the year when the Gundam project was initiated. And that naming convention is consistent throughout many different Gundam series and is a distinctly Western and American style of naming weapons. Japanese weapons from the World Wars don't usually follow that naming convention.
1: Irish mythology is full of spears, which were invariably deadly once thrown, but which thirsted for blood and could become dangerous to their owners unless pacified. The sword Durnwin from Welsh myth could blaze with fire when drawn by a worthy man, but the fire would consume anyone unworthy who dared to draw the sword. In Arthurian legends, the sword Clarent, the sword in the stone, and the sword Excalibur give Arthur great power and solidify his position as king, However, both weapons also kind of lead to his death. <laughs> Morgan Le Fay steals Excalibur and gives it to Acalon, the man she loves and wants to make king, telling him that he must use it in his next battle. In the way of old stories, he winds up fighting Arthur, and neither of them recognize the other. It is only intervention of the Lady of the Lake that saves Arthur. After learning the whole story, Arthur forgives Acalon. They were friends. <laughs> Uh, but Acalon still dies of his wounds. In vengeance for the death of Acalon, Morgan Le Fay then steals Excalibur's scabbard, which, in many of the legends, protects the bearer from bleeding to death, regardless of their wounds. This leaves Arthur vulnerable. The wounds that ultimately kill Arthur are inflicted by his nephew Mordred, wielding none other than Clarent, the sword in the stone.
0: And by the way... Please don't add us saying that, in fact, it was Caliburn or Excalibur in the stone or that Mordred was actually Arthur's son and not his nephew. Arthurian legend is very inconsistent. This is one version and it's a good one.
1: Yeah. Basically, every source I looked at was like, in some versions, <laughs> in some other versions. So there's there is no definitive take on the Arthurian legends. Right.
0: And of course, all of these legends get mixed together and all of these magical swords end up picking up attributes from other ones. The blazing sword, Dernwin, uh, that blazing effect when it's drawn was also sometimes applied to Excalibur. And in a fantastic artifact of the era when these myths were written, it was said that the light from Excalibur was blinding because it burned as brightly as 30 torches.
1: <laughs> uh
0: I found a myth from Japanese legend, which is actually remarkably similar both to the story about the Winchester 73 and all of the chaos that traveled in its wake, as well as those Celtic weapons that thirsted for blood once drawn. So this is the legend of two swordsmiths, Masamune and Muramasa. If you've played any JRPG or Japanese role-playing game, there's a very good chance you have already encountered one or both of these names. Both of these guys are actually historical figures. Masamune is the finest swordsmith in Japanese history, by most accounts. He lived sometime in the 13th century and near modern-day Tokyo. Muramasa lived in the 16th century near Ise, which is about 160-170 miles away. So while both of these guys did exist historically, they absolutely never met, since neither one of them managed to live to be 200. (laughs) However, in legend, mostly arising out of kabuki in its early years during the Tokugawa shogunate, history got compressed a little bit. And it was said that Muramasa was a student of Masamune. Masamune is generally regarded as having been a pretty good dude. Muramasa, on the other hand, in the legends, and there's, again, no historical evidence for this at all, but in the legends, Muramasa is said to have been a madman, evil, broken in some way, and that this evil spirit entered into his swords when he made them. They were weapons of surpassing quality, but they were evil. And it is said in the legend that he challenged Masamune, his master, to a competition. Each of them would craft a sword. Then each of them placed the sword in the water of a stream with the blade facing upstream. When Muramasa placed his sword into the stream, everything going down the stream was cut in half, leaves, fish, even the air itself.
1: I wonder how you can tell that the air itself has been cut in half.
0: (laughs) But when Masamune placed his blade in the stream, the leaves were cut, but the fish swam around it and the air blew around it. Each drew their blade forth, And Muramasa declared himself the winner, for his sword had cut everything. And is that not the purpose of a sword? But a Buddhist monk happened to be watching, and he approached the two afterwards. And he declared it was Masamune who had triumphed, for his blade had cut only what it was meant to cut, and had spared the innocent.
1: How allegorical!
0: Now, over time, this legend of the Muramasa sword and its bloodlust grew and grew. It didn't help that Muramasa swords were particularly favored by the Tokugawa clan, which meant that every time something bad happened to a member of the Tokugawa clan, a Muramasa sword was involved in some way, including accidents and murders, and that one time a retainer got drunk and killed his friends, always Muramasa swords. And so a legend began to spread that they were cursed and it got embellished, and soon it became that once you drew a Muramasa sword, it had to taste blood or it would not be sheathed again, including driving its wielder mad or forcing him to commit suicide.
1: And yet, despite the reputation, the chaos, and the supposed curse, the Tokugawa clan kept its swords.
0: (laughs) They did, although today, Japan has a designation that they give to certain artifacts, declaring them national treasures or important cultural properties. Many of Masamune's swords have been given this designation. None of the Muramasas have been. Really? Yeah.
1: Wow. (laughs) Chills.
0: And as another interesting note, even though Muramasa weapons were wielded by the Tokugawa clan because of this legend that they were cursed and because of all these supposed incidents of Tokugawa's being injured with them, the Muramasa sword became a symbol of anti-Tokugawa sentiment later in the Shogunate.
1: Fascinating. So obviously the Gundam has some striking differences from these stories the two main ones to my mind being one the people trying to capture or destroy the gundam don't want it for themselves in basically all of these other stories the point of the weapon is that you want it (laughs) so you can use it and it can make you powerful instead of that other guy shar Garma, rambaral none of them are thinking they are going to pilot the gundam They have other desires and it's all tied up in the war and their own personal place in the war and politics, Uh, but it's less direct. It's less like theft (laughs) and more like stealing military secrets. The other major difference being that all of these weapons are of some kind of surpassing or magical quality, which is really incomparable to anything else and which is not going to be surpassed by anything else. Whereas with the Gundam, we know it's an arms race. The goof is already very close to being as good (laughs) as the Gundam. And it's not hard to imagine that within a short period of time, both sides, Federation and Xeon, will have created weapons that surpass the Gundam in many ways.
0: And for everyone listening, I want to remind you that Nina does not know what is coming.
1: It's true. This is how arms races work. And so... (laughs) uh, So, even if they capture the Gundam, that maybe improves their technological advantage for a matter of months, possibly years on the outside, but not forever. It's Mm -hmm. not a, it does not have that extent of quality over everything else. But I think we can safely say, you know, when we're talking about the Masamune and Muramasa swords, when we're talking about Excalibur and Clarent, when we're talking about the one of 1,000 Winchester 73, we're talking about something that is so surpassingly good that it's really not even comparable to anything else.
0: (laughs) Except those are just swords and that's just a gun.
1: Yep. Well, and that's So now we can talk about ways in which the Gundam is similar, (laughs) right? One, the Gundam certainly has made Amuro important. It hasn't made his life better. We can argue about this because the war was coming, whether he got in the Gundam or not, and who knows what it would be if he hadn't. But... The Gundam doesn't make him happy by any stretch of the imagination. It gives him a sense of fulfillment that he has a role and he has certainly become possessive of the Gundam, that it belongs to him. But if Amuro is to have an undoing, it's going to be because of the Gundam. (laughs) (laughs) The other similarity being... All of the people attached to these mythical weapons were great without the weapons. Like all the myths talk about Arthur was already a great leader of men before the swords. The Tokugawas didn't need swords. I mean, they needed some swords. They didn't need those specific cursed swords to take over Japan. All of these people fighting over the Winchester 73 were already living in the American West, you know, as sheriffs, as outlaws, as hunters, what have you. They didn't need this gun to be great. And yet there's this whole thirst for power Mm -hmm. (laughs) subtext involved in all these stories about these weapons. And and thirst for legitimacy in the more mythic weapons, not so much in Winchester 73, but in these other stories with the mythic spears, with the mythic swords. So often they are symbols of legitimacy for the characters who wield them to justify that person's power in society, the fact that they're a lord, the fact that they're a king.
0: And usually in the Arthurian legends, for instance, when Arthur loses Excalibur or the Scabbard or Clarent, it's usually connected to some moral failing, to some indication that he has lost whatever it was that made him special and worthy of this exalted place.
1: And as we've seen in the social tension in the episodes since Amaro left... Amuro has, in a lot of ways, gotten special treatment and continues to do so, and it's entirely because of his association with the Gundam. And, not for nothing, the Gundam is taken away from him because of his moral failing in deserting the rest of them and his inability to take responsibility for and make amends for his mistakes.
0: And going back one last time to the bloodlust, the weapon that won't be sated. Mm. We've joked about Amuro in attack mode and how Zakuza's trigger. But since he took up the Gundam, he has been fighting nonstop, and he has taken every opportunity to fight that he has been given. He has never backed down from a fight, even fights he didn't need to fight. And if that's Amuro or the Gundam, who knows? We're there is some both together. There is some bloodlust in him.
1: Next time, on a very special episode of Mobile Suit Breakdown. Episode 1.20, The Fate of a Soldier. Several people who are not Amuro. A wild tiger. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Who are all these people? A man with a plan, and a woman with a better plan. Ryu and the punch of teamwork. We're jumping onto white base. Dr. Haro's bedside manner. They all had names. And a part where we actually cried. Have your tissues ready. Will you be able to survive?
0: sure you do all the podcast things like subscribe share and pledge your undying devotion to mobile suit breakdown on fine podcast services everywhere and on youtube follow us on twitter at gundam podcast check out our website gundampodcast.com for episodes show notes and more and you can email your questions comments and complaints to gundampodcast at gmail.com or shout your wrong gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic new york city and shouting, there's nothing weird about Haman's interest in Amuro on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. All been waiting for
1: in this corner.
0: Nina discussing mythological weapons. <laughs> this is the one with, that ends with rambaral swinging away on swinging. the
1: line. <laughs> I'll get you next time. On Gundam. <laughs> um, um, manam-num. Manam-num. <laughs>
0: I think at this point we have enough evidence that we can be pretty certain we know what Tomino's type is.
1: Strong, older women.
0: Who are very slender and tall. Mm -hmm. Blondes, redheads. (laughs) By the way, she said Oedipal like Oedipus, not Edible like Delicious.